Hello, goblins. We want to know more about you, our listeners, so we can try to get some sponsorship to support our network and our creators. We love podcasting and putting out content, but it can be financially strenuous, as we're sure many of you know. Head to cavegoblins.com survey and answer some quick questions to be in the draw to win a $20 Amazon gift card. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Talia Murdoch, and would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people where this podcast is recorded. Today I am going to be discussing the middle class. Now, when I set out to research this episode, I thought it would be a standalone piece about the middle class and what is happening to this group of people from an income and wealth perspective. But I have found that it is a really dense and complicated field of research, so I will be addressing this topic across a number of episodes. To start, I simply need to talk about how we actually define the middle class and what implications this might have for analysing changes to this group and for policymakers. I'm going to touch on various definitions that have been used within different contexts over time, and discuss what problems we currently face in just defining the middle class alone. I want to really get this foundation laid down as I have come to learn that we can't just talk about possible income inequality and varying classes without understanding the definition first. A quick Google search defines the middle class in its most basic form as a social group between the upper and working classes, including professional and business workers and their families. Seems pretty straightforward and easy to decipher, but that term social group means something different to everyone. Whether you are a researcher and define the middle class based on education, or just a person who has a clear idea of who a middle class person is, this definition will vary. Now, the problem with a varying definition is that it makes it more difficult to measure what is happening to this group of people over time. Without consistency in the approach, You can get one group of people saying something while another group of people believe something completely different. This issue is currently being addressed by a number of institutions and think tanks so that accurate, timely data can be collected and policymakers can be well informed. The Brookings Institute and American Think Tank have written some great papers about this topic. I'm going to sum up a lot of their work and as I expanded my research, I found that many sources say much of the same thing and face many of the same issues. There are three ways that the middle class can be broadly defined. That is by cash, by credentials and by culture. Cash refers to a household's income and or wealth and is the main definition used by economists and frequently by government. Credentials is about education and qualifications And culture is more about attitudes, mindset, and lifestyle, whether materialized or not. So let's start with cash or income as a way to measure the middle class. Now, income and wealth are probably the most reliable ways to measure as data is readily available, accurate, and reliable. It is also well understood by the public in this context and can be used in a number of different ways to make comparisons between regions in a country or internationally. 
For the most part, when we are talking about ways to define the middle class based on household income, this will be centered around median income. Now, median income is simply the middle income. If you lined every single household up in a row and found its middle based on the dollars, it's a type of average you are probably already familiar with from high school. Right, so some definitions might say the middle class includes anyone who has an income that ranges from 75% to 150% of median income. This means that if we took median income in 2017 in the US of about $60,000 per household and applied this definition, then the middle class would include households with an income between $45,000 and $90,000. Taking median income and then measuring how far a household is from it is a pretty straightforward measurement in itself. The problem with this definition is not necessarily the process, rather the fact that even scholars who use this formula don't agree on the distances that should be applied. Some say you're middle class if you earn 60% to 200% of median income, and others might say, no, it's 75% to 125%. So we won't always have consistency in how the data can inform policy because we're talking about completely different groups. Now, this is where I quite like the idea of defining the middle class by purchasing power parity instead of income alone. Purchasing power is the value of a currency expressed in terms of the amount of goods or services that one unit of money can buy. Basically, when we consider what can be bought with daily income, we are providing a more accurate reflection of real income that considers inflation and the cost of living. Purchasing power parity is also how we can draw comparisons between affluent and developing countries and come to more accurate conclusions. Obviously, if we are just talking in nominal terms, a household income of $60,000 means something very different in the US than it would in, say, India. With this type of income in India, you might not necessarily be the middle class at all. This is why purchasing power parity is so great. It normalizes income levels in any country, looks at what a set amount of income gets you, and calculates this to the same currency to be able to compare the differences in middle class across the world. This is, of course, when we are using income as the way to measure class status. Now, if you are interested in this concept and want to see what your money gets you in your own country to others compared to others, Google the Big Mac Index. So I've touched on measuring the distance from median income as well as purchasing power parity. The other main two income-based approaches are by range of distribution and distance from poverty. Let's start with poverty first. Similar to distance from median income, distance from poverty will usually say, you are middle class if you earn anywhere between X percent and Y percent of the poverty line. One researcher sets the lower bound of the middle class at 150% of poverty income, while another might set this at 300%. Again, a straightforward measurement to make as this type of data is readily available and frequently updated. But when two scholars have different income thresholds, it is hard to get a consistent message and picture of what is happening to this demographic over time. And the last one, defining the middle class based on the range of income distribution considers how income is spread across an entire population, breaks it up into chunks known as quintiles, 
and then says certain quintiles are what make up the middle class. For example, if income distribution is broken up into five quintiles or five groups, it would go that quintile one would be those who are living in poverty, while quintile five are the upper class. The middle class is anyone in groups two and four. Now, under this definition, the size of the middle class is fixed over time because the groups are set. You would have to push someone into another group, higher or lower, if you were to join the middle class. This can be problematic, as one of the things we want to know as economists is what is happening to the middle class over time. Is it growing or is it shrinking and why? Finally, on income, and now that I've talked about the ways the middle class can be defined using this, I want to factor in wealth, as this is something I think is critical to making proper analysis. Wealth, or net worth, considers the resources available to a household. This will include the value of property owned, stocks and securities, trusts, etc. It considers all non-liquid assets that can potentially be turned into cash by either selling or using as collateral to get more cash via debt. Now, the reason I think this needs to be factored in is because the level of wealth a household has will determine their overall economic security and how they may be affected by economic shocks, plus how they will fare from a class perspective later in life when they're no longer earning an income from work. Someone with a lot of wealth, upwards of say $5 million, can be very financially comfortable and stable, regardless of what is happening to their direct income, compared to someone who even has $1 million in wealth. From what I can tell, most economists will consider wealth when measuring income and defining class, as it really does affect where you fall and the risk of where you could fall if you do stop working for some reason or another. So now that we are well-versed in how to define the middle class using income in a number of different ways, let's talk about how we can define the middle class based on credentials. Credentials are mainly to do with education and qualifications. This definition of the middle class is primarily used by sociologists. In this context, income is not the only thing that influences one class, rather the level of education, skills and occupation held do. The benefit to this measure is that education and occupation are much more visible than income. Most new conversations will start with the question, so what do you do? This is an immediate way to place someone on the social scale as you're not really going to approach a new person and ask them what they earn to do this. Maybe you will, but I probably wouldn't. These definitions tend to be more popular among European scholars than US ones, and I'm not really sure why, but I'm sure I'll find out as I continue this series. I find it particularly interesting as it is one that would need to be updated frequently to reflect what is going on at a given time. For example, if you held a bachelor's degree 20 years ago, you are a lot more likely to get a good paying job than if you hold one today. A degree has become more of a necessity to get by in modern day life, and this type of model would have to keep up with these changes. Something else the education definition does is create a way to distinguish the working class from the middle class. What I'm referring to here is the fact that someone who drives cranes at a port and earns a very decent income, that would put them in the middle class based on this alone, probably doesn't consider themselves as middle class, but rather working class, as they most likely went to a community college or a training centre 
to be able to complete the job that they do. The project manager, who has a bachelor's degree and works in an office, earns close to the same amount of money, would probably consider themselves middle class, and the crane driver would likewise. If you just considered the income of the two, they would both likely fall into the middle class, even if they didn't feel they belonged there. So education can kind of separate the two. Now, there is one major problem with defining class based on education. Unlike when we use income, education is tied to the individual and not the household. So when using this definition in a household that has multiple workers, they usually just consider the person who has the economically dominant occupation. Most of the time, this means that the woman of the house automatically has their class status tied to their male partners, which is just not equitable. Something else I want to point out before moving on to culture is that education data is also readily available, accurate and consistent over time, often correlates with income level, and will generally overlap and intersect with definitions of middle class based on income. So the two very much complement each other and there is absolutely a space for both. So now the final way that scholars will define the middle class is by culture. This is much more abstract than the previously discussed forms of measurements and is generally dependent on survey data. Using culture to define the middle class takes into account that for many, class is a state of mind. There are certain interests, attitudes, behaviours and aspirations that can be attached to what it means to be middle class. And this form of measurement also includes not only people who have achieved the aspirations, but also to those who are still aspiring to reach them. According to people who self-identify, the key facets of a middle-class lifestyle are to own a home, be in a position to save for retirement, send your kids to college, have health insurance, a car for every adult in a household, and be able to go on a family vacation at least once a year. This is a life that a lot of us are familiar with. It is a great reflection of the American dream, and in my experience, the Australian dream too. The thing that really makes this stand out from income is that a lot of these elements can be achieved by people who are on lower incomes, who might be on the cusp of the lower middle class. For example, this definition doesn't care if you own an expensive home in an affluent suburb or a cheap one, have high-end insurance or basic government insurance, send your kids to an elite college or not, and if your family vacation is a $500 trip to a local amusement park, that still counts. In my experience, this is the least common used definition, but it is being talked about. It is largely about self-perception, and if researchers come up with definitions about class that people technically fit into but don't identify with, then writing policy based on these incomes becomes harder because it doesn't translate to the public. Now, I quite like this concept, but I don't know if I'm fully on board with using it as income and education do seem to be more robust tools. But I can definitely understand how it plays a role in the broader conversation and it should be considered regardless of the definition you're using. So that brings me to the end of this episode. My plans for this series, now that I've laid out the fundamentals of defining the middle class, is to explore what has happened to this group of people over time. It seems like life has gotten harder for anyone in it, to be honest, and the risk of slipping to a lower class and even into poverty 
is very real for those on the lower end. I want to find out whether or not this is true based on current research. I suspect it is. Something else that I want to get into is how race fits into this conversation. Class has primarily been about white people, but the demographics of the middle class are changing significantly. Now, I'm a cis white woman, so don't think it's appropriate for me to tell this side of the story alone. If you are a person of colour and are interested in having this conversation, I would love to hear from you. You can reach out to me on economicspodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at EveryEconomics and find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. Set the show to auto-download and please check out patreon.com slash cavegoblins if you want to support us and get access to exclusive content. We have much more stuff in the works for this, which we will be announcing soon, so keep an eye out for that. Thank you again. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch, and this has been Everything Economics. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.